We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Sedholm. And I'm your host, Jessica Sedholm. In today's episode, we look at the disease scurvy, which I personally consider the real curse of the Black Pearl. But more importantly, we discuss the complicated discovery of a very simple cure. Episode 9, Scurvy, The Lost Cure. What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? Way up she rises, way up she rises, way up she rises early in the morning. Aye, Captain, come quick. Uh, what's the matter? It's Jack. He looks a step away from Davy Jones. Ah, another victim to the scurvy. Not again. Put him in the brig. We can't risk him infecting another. Captain, the scurvy is putting more men under than we can handle. If it continues at this rate, we won't have enough men to keep afloat. Blast! This plague gets worse with every journey. And the vitriol hasn't helped? Not a wink. And the grog hasn't either, Captain. Nothing short of a miracle from the Lord himself will save our ship from destruction. Let's start a course for nearest land. Shove aft! Sails to the wind! Sailing the high seas has been proven to be a dangerous and often deadly adventure. Tales of piracy, famine, Mother Nature's pure power have all left their mark in history and in our stories. But what if the greatest killer of sailors was not feral pirates or the deadly kraken, but was in fact disease? By 17th and 18th century Britain, one of the deadliest was a painful, bloody death in a matter of weeks. Everyone on deck knew the signs and the fate of a man with scurvy. The first documented case of scurvy was actually in 1500 BC with the ancient Egyptians. And we did, we did everything back then. True. But in the thousands of years since its advent in Egypt, it kind of remained in this lull. 
It didn't gain notoriety as a disease until the 13th century when it was so rampant among ships that people actually started confronting it. Various persons proposed cures from the 1300s well into the 1700s, and amazingly, some of them were correct in their treatment. One prime example, in 1617, a British military surgeon by the name of John Woodall stated that lemon juice cured scurvy. So there was a cure. Well, it's not that easy. If everyone listened to Dr. Woodall, this story would end right here. The prevailing theories of the time dictated that scurvy was a multifactorial disease, and they laughed at the proposed solution because it was actually very simple, almost too easy. That, combined with the general lack of communication between different regions of the globe, made the cure forgotten by each turn of the century. In fact, the treatment was discovered, used, and lost again several times over the course of his existence. An embarrassing truth that resulted in far too many deaths at sea. And what did those old-timey docs believe we could do about scurvy? Well, remember our previous episode about Borhoff syndrome when we discussed the four humors? From the time of ancient Greeks until basically the 18th century, medicine was based on the idea that you had four elements in your body. Blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Any disturbance in one of these four humors were believed to be the cause of all diseases. Because some of the symptoms of scurvy, which included a lot of bruising and bleeding, they assumed the disease was caused by a disruption of blood. And just like Baron John Van Wassener, the treatment for bad blood was bloodletting, often with leeches. But that just made patients feel awful. So treating scurvy had its ups and downs, to say the least. But a doctor by the name of James Lind would intervene in scurvy's course and change the world forever. He was a Scottish physician working in the British Navy and decided to set up an experiment in hopes for finding a cure. He was no stranger to the sea himself, traveling multiple voyages during the War of Austrian Succession. It wasn't until the ship Salisbury set sail on May 10, 1747, with a full, healthy crew of 350 men that his experiment took place. Ten weeks into the voyage, 80 of those sailors had been struck with scurvy. Keep in mind, this is when ships sailed with an extra 50% crew to make up for the losses they anticipated from scurvy. Dr. Lin wanted to definitively find out what to do about the disease. He had heard of many cures from various sources, and he wanted to test them out on the six sailors. It was with that group that Dr. James Lind began what could now be described as the world's first randomized clinical trial. And for those at home who don't know what a randomized clinical trial is, Wolfiek? Ah, a randomized clinical trial, or RCT for short, is when groups of people are, at random, given either one of the treatments under study, or they're given a control treatment that's supposed to have no effect. The idea is to see the differences between the control, which is akin to giving them nothing, and the other treatments. Okay, so his experiment was simple. He divided the ship into six groups, subjected them to differing treatments, and watched their clinical course over time. The first group was given cider, the second, sulfuric acid, the third, 
vinegar, the fourth, seawater, the fifth, barley water, and the final group received oranges and lemons. So, how did our sailors do? Well, before we find that out, let's learn more about how scurvy attacks the human body. Let's. I think it's that time, Jesse. Uh oh. It's time to learn the science behind some of our favorite stories. Off to the Synaptic Center! When it comes to vitamin C, humans are a strange case. They're one of the few animals who are unable to create their own vitamin C, so we need to get it from fruits, vegetables, or sometimes other animals. Scurvy is a direct result of a lack of this vitamin, which has the chemical name ascorbic acid. And basically, the vitamin C is essential to the modification of certain amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein in your body. That's why you should always take your vitamins. Well said, Ophie. In all, there are 20 amino acids in the body that form billions of different combinations to generate a single protein. Out of those 20 amino acids, two of them are named lysine and proline, and they specifically contribute to the stabilization of one of the most important proteins in our body, which is collagen. And you might have heard about collagen when people talk about skin products, but it's also, I don't know, just so much more than that. Yeah, It's the most abundant protein in your body. It lives all over your connective tissue, so bones, ligaments, tendons, blood, you name it. As a complete protein, collagen is made up of three chains arranged in a triple helix. Only in the presence of vitamin C can proper formation of these chains occur. Any defect and you can end up with total disruptions of the connective tissue. That means weak blood vessels, which leak fluid into the tissues. It means brittle bones that are subject to breaking. And it means loose skin that's prone to infection. Not only that, your muscle can be damaged by an inability to form a molecule called carnitine. Overall, scurvy manifests itself with malaise, fatigue, bone and muscle pain, and that characteristic black and bloody gums, which is not a good look, even for a scary pirate. It's treated with simple vitamin C supplementation, and the symptoms reverse in a matter of days. But if left untreated, as it was for thousands of years when sailors couldn't bring fresh goods like fruits or animals onto ships, then the condition ultimately leads to death because of bleeding or infection. Now that we understand scurvy a little bit better, let's see how Dr. James Lynn described the conclusion of his experiment. In his 1753 publication, A Treatise of the Scurvy, he detailed his results. The consequence was that the most sudden and visible good effects were perceived from the uses of oranges and lemons. One of those who had taken them being in the end of six days fit for duty. The spots were not indeed at the same 
time quite off his body, nor his gum sound, but without any other medicine than the gargarism of elixir vitriol, he became quite healthy, and being now deemed pretty well, was appointed nurse for the rest of the sick. It seemed that with enough careful observation, James Lind had prevented this man's death with a simple fruit, a lemon. Unfortunately, our doctor didn't believe that it could be so easy, and so he contributed the disease not only to a lack of citrus fruits, but multiple other causes. He believed that the consumption of salted meats on board and swimming in the sea caused an inability to sweat from all that seawater, which then in turn caused scurvy by consequence. At the time, it was believed that scurvy was rooted in the gastrointestinal system, and Dr. James Lynn sort of felt a bit of pressure to adhere to that norm. Eventually, he proposed making a boiled lemon juice concentrate based on his re- the results of his experiment, but the process of heating actually destroyed vitamin C, rendering it ineffective. It denatured the proteins, which altered the structure of the molecule. So, I'm to put this in layman's terms, denaturing a protein is basically like what happens when you fry an egg. That white part that turns from clear to white is the denaturing or unraveling of protein within the egg. So, James' cure was basically rendered useless, and the cure was brushed aside yet again, and scurvy continued to haunt the high seas for decades. It was not until the end of the 1700s that fresh citrus fruits were deemed the ultimate treatment for scurvy in the British Navy. Rear Admiral Alan Gardner wrote to the Sick and Hurt Board, which established supplies to the ships, that he wanted fresh lemons to curb scurvy for he had seen its success in previous journeys. He quotes, I must further beg leave to suggest to you whether a few chests of lemons may not be productive of great benefits to the crews of the respective ships. With the implementation of these rations on the HMS Suffolk, the journey was successful and not a trace of scurvy was detected on the ship. The response was massive and for the next several years, the British Navy had the upper hand in war because of their healthy, boisterous sailors who were no longer dwindling in numbers due to the effects of scurvy. By 1799, a mixture of lemon juice and sugar, a drink called lemon rob, was used on British ships, and they enjoyed their dominance of the seas. It's actually kind of funny because the way lemon rob was actually processed reduced the amount of available vitamin C by half, but it was still enough to prevent scurvy. But, once again, the scientific reasoning of the time was a hindrance to progress. Even though there was a clear connection between lemons and curing scurvy, the scientists believed it was the acidity of the fruit that cured the disease. What was more acidic and easier to grow for the British? Why, limes, of course. Droves of limes became a staple of naval journeys. In fact, the British sailors were affectionately known as limeys for this reason. There was one problem with limes. One that would prove disastrous, actually. The limes had about half of that key vitamin C that lemons contained. So, like a zombie emerging from the ground, scurvy returned to plague those poor soldiers. It took until 
1927 for vitamin C to be isolated in a laboratory, but the final connection wasn't solidified and proven until 1932. Since then, we were able to prevent the disease and treat the malnourished. The rates of scurvy are the lowest in history, owing to the fortification of everyday foods that you can pick up at the grocery store, like cereal and juices and protein bars. They all have vitamin C added to it. Indeed. James Lynn's landmark experiment paved the way for scientists to create trials based on evidence, observation, and hypothesis. But perhaps the greatest takeaway is the importance of communication in the scientific community. The use of citrus fruits has been proven and forgotten so much over time that it's hard to keep track. It's a tough lesson, but it encourages us to collaborate in order to avoid errors and redundancy. See, pirates weren't all that bad. They helped science. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medicalization. If you'd like to learn more about a story, go to medicalizationpodcast.com for some further reading. Please make sure to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and or SoundCloud and give us a review. You don't have to give us a review, but sharing with your friends and writing a review are the best ways to help us out. We'll see you next time for another look into the medical history vault with Jess and Wafiq. Until then, toodaloo. Which I personally consider the real curse of the Black Plague. Jesus. And <laughs> <laughs> all there are 20 amino acids in the body that form billions and billions and billions. <laughs> well said. And all there are 20 amino acids in the body that form billions. <laughs> well said, Wafiq. In all, there are 20 amino acids in the body that form different combinations of billions of combinations of billions (laughs) that form billions of different... I'm just going to say billions once. Oh, get connected for free. With medicine connection. (laughs) With the implementation of these rations on the HMS Sulfunk... Suffolk. <laughs> what? It's, it's a soul folk. You cock, cock me, love? Blimey, limey. Now, back to our show.